Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our lives, how it impacts our world. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field, and we interview a special guest about their work in design because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we are talking about book cover design, and we're gonna talk about how designers make engaging designs that bring a writer's work to life on the shelf and online. Joining us today as guest co-host is Scott Birkin, an author and popular speaker whose talks range in topics from creativity, leadership, public speaking, design, and more. And our special guest is John Key, an artist, designer, writer, and educator who co-founded the Brooklyn design studio, Morcos Key with YL Morcos. Together, they designed the long-awaited Black Futures book by New York Times journalist Jenna Wortham and art curator Kimberly Drew. But before we dive in, some news from the Design Museum. Actually, this is exciting news about the Design Museum. So about a month ago, we brought on our new director of operations, Rachel Bosenberg. And I just wanted to give a shout out to Rachel. We're so excited to have her on the team. We have needed a director of operations for years. Uh, Design Museum has been growing and growing over these 12 years and our operation is complex. So we do a lot of projects, we have finance to think about, HR, and it's just been so good to have Rachel on the team handling that work. And she does it with grace and with a smile and just a great addition to the team. So welcome officially, Rachel, and we're excited to have you. And with that, on to this week's topic. You know that saying, don't judge a book by its cover? The idea is that there's so much more that meets the eye, right? But how else can you grab a book and how's that gonna grab your attention? The cover, it's right there. So what takes a book that is on the shelf collecting dust off the shelf and into readers' hands? It might just be a captivating book cover, a combination of good blurbs, a cool font, detailed image. Recently, I set a goal to read 50 books this year. I'm making it happen. So I've been seeing a lot of covers over the last few months. So how do designers and writers collaborate to convey the heart of a story and capture a reader's attention? I'm so excited to chat with our guest co-host this week. I'm joined by Scott Birkin. Scott is a best-selling author and public speaker. Previously, he studied philosophy and computer science and design at Carnegie Mellon University. In 2003, he left his career in tech to become a full-time author and speaker, and he's crushing it. His book, How Design Makes the World, teaches people what good design is and why it's important. He even joined us on an episode of Design is Everywhere to chat about the book and how design shapes the world around us. I love that episode, so go check it out. And he's a member of the Design Museum Council, which I'm also very grateful for. Scott expertly combines his understanding of design and storytelling that makes audiences pay attention. Scott, welcome back. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here and to talk about Books. Yay, books. Yeah, I mean, it's the best topic. I wanted to start with your thoughts on the impact of book cover design and your role as an author. So how does your writing contribute to your book cover design preferences? So the first thing most people should know is that most of the time, most authors have almost no say in their book covers. <laughs> it is one of the most protected decisions that publishers make. Oh, so they have the decision. Usually, uh, mm -hmm. especially for new authors, the title and the cover is something they pay a lot of attention to. Mm. Oddly, they pay a lot less attention to what's in the book, which <laughs> should drive most people crazy. Interesting. Yeah. And that suggests, as the, the cliche, don't judge a book by its cover, 
uh, they feel like the cover is the first thing people will see, at least it used to be. And they believe that's where the marketing power and decision-making and knowledge should be. The publisher knows more about how to do that than the author does. So historically, most authors don't get a lot of say in this. Wow. Even authors writing about design. It's that's terrible. wild to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so more successful authors, they can negotiate for influence and control. So I did not have any influence over the design of the first my first book that I wrote on project management. But I negotiated for it later. And I felt like this should be a key part of what the author does is the vision for the book and the experience of it and the title. So my relationship has, it's multifactored. On the one hand, I know that some people pay a lot of attention to it, but I've also learned having published eight books that it's not the way most people think. When you choose to read a book, it's rarely now because you saw the cover. It's usually because you read a review, a friend mentioned it, you saw someone talk about it who you respect on social media. And if that's the case, you're going to get the book anyway. Yeah, yeah. Has that changed how you... Because yeah, I think you're right. Like you look on Amazon or online, it's like it, it becomes the thumbnail, right? That like yes. is more representative of like an icon representing that book. Has do you think the designs have changed because now we're seeing them as like a little two inch tall thing on our screen versus in a bookshop? It should. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it should. But the publishing industry is still kind of slow. Better authors, better cover designers have recognized what you're talking about years ago. And so part of their process is before we get too far in our ideas, let's think can we make sure the font size is large enough that it can be read in the thumbnail? Mm -hmm. Whatever style impression we want to make, feel angry, sad, happy, intriguing, yeah. can that come through in a 200 by 400 pixel you know, thing? But if you look at a lot of book covers, clearly they have not thought about that. Yeah. But many have it and they should. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've, again, seeing all these book covers as I'm like choosing what I'm reading, some of these covers, you're like, okay, let's just zoom in here to see this subtitle. <laughs> but you're right. I end up, you know, reading the reviews or the, you know, the blurbs. Now, of course, you've taken some different routes in publishing. And then you've, I know you've written on your blog about the collaboration process and you hired is it Tim Cordick. Yeah. Tim Cordick. Yeah. He's done a few for me. Yeah. So can you tell us about that process and maybe how it's different than the, what you've just shown us that authors get no say? <laughs> so my background is in user experience design and I'm familiar with the process of iteration. You start out low fidelity, you learn, you iterate, and you experiment. Cover designers don't tend to work that way. They work with a much narrower, even famous ones work with a much narrower set of ideas. So even if you're the author and have control, you're not doing this wide ranging so with Tim, that's who I looked for. I'm like, hey, I don't want to waste your time, right. but can we spend an hour talking and sketching just crazy ideas out? Just an hour. And he was up for it. And that's how we started. And we went from very rough sketches. And then we picked out of the 20 sketches we did, we picked 10 to do a second bigger version. And the typical model that we're taught in design thinking of you know, you have this wide set, you narrow it down, you expand it again, you, but you're, you're narrowing as you go. So we probably did four or five rounds. And then the last round was four or five final looking covers. And part of that process was involving my readers and fans. How'd you do that? We picked for most of the rounds, at least two of the rounds, we picked four or five covers and I put them up on the website, on the blog and let people vote. That's so great. And <laughs> did you feel like well, you were giving up control? <laughs> 
Well, the fun thing about votes when you have the power is you have nothing to lose because yeah. they don't it's not a democracy really, mm-hmm. <laughs> a, but it was a way to bring people into the process and also to teach people about design, to show the unfinished versions mm-hmm. and they could see the iterations and how decisions got made. And I think that's the right way to do it, that you experiment, you bring your customers and your fans into the conversation and then um, you iterate and then you put it out into the world. You said that that's not normally how it's done. That's my assumption would be like if I were to design a book cover, like I would go through those. Is it more of like an art piece, you know, on the flip side where it's like I'm incorporating this vision and I here's my vision as a artist designer. It's somewhere in the middle. And it depends a lot on who the designer is. There's some very famous cover designers. So you have to reach out to them and hope they'll be interested. <laughs> and then <laughs> you'll kind of take what you get because that's the prestige level that they have. Somewhere in the middle is if they're if they're a cover designer, it's a very specific kind of design work. So they usually have their opinions and they'll have a brief chat with you. Then they just start offering designs and they'll take your feedback. But compared to a user experience or architecture kind of design discussion where you get into the details, it's not that kind of a feedback process usually. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more sensitive. And this is my experience. I've maybe worked with, I don't know, six to 10 cover designers over my career, maybe 12. I don't know if that's enough of a sample size, but <laughs> but that's my experience. It's not an open, fun, dynamic feedback process. And then they come back with iterations. You discuss those. And maybe you get three rounds. And I'm saying that like it's probably not enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially if you're willing to start early with rough sketches, which yeah, yeah. A, lot of, a lot of graphic designers will not do. Mm-hmm. Well, is there a point as you're writing the book that like, well, A, the book kind of becomes real and do you see the cover in your mind <laughs> or you, like your idea of what it could be like as you're in the middle of that process? Well, it's a good question. I think um, my default answer is no. But I don't, I think I'm more of a writer's writer. I'm not, I'm a designer, but I'm like a user experience, functional, usability oriented person. Yeah, there's a process and this is coming at the end of that process. Yeah, so I I may have an inkling in my head of something vague, but I'm usually not that tightly attached to it. And I'm hoping to partner with a designer who has that visual sensibility and, and strength who can come in and take the book and and manifest it visually in some way. So I guess my answer is no. Usually I don't have that clear of a a rough idea, but I'm not not tied to it. Yeah, because I was curious if like the cover ever or that vision of a cover ever then like reflects back into the writing and do they bounce? But it sounds like you're very process oriented. Well, I think part of the problem too is just the way the publishing industry works. You really don't touch the cover until late in the process. And I think that's probably even true for visual designers who write books that they it's it's further in the process of the whole project that you're ever going to sit down and think about in part because the title could change. The direction of the book could change. Like you could be have this great idea for a romance novel and you you hire a designer from day one and they make it this great cover of like, you know, whatever, you know, the bare chested guy and a beautiful woman or whatever. And then midway through, it becomes a murder mystery. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So so now Mm -hmm. um, all that work is squandered. So I think there are logistical reasons why you wouldn't tend to work that way. Yeah. I'm just thinking about, so we've done two books at the design museum. And we kind of, we had to visualize the cover 
in order to get funding, right? It's sort of like, we, well, one of them we did a Kickstarter for. So it was like, what, so what do you put on this Kickstarter? And that was really interesting. And I think in some ways it was good, but in other ways it did pigeonhole us. And we had to like break, break out past this like shared image we had put there. That's a great observation. So I've Kickstartered two books. And for one of them, that's part of what we did. That we, we didn't do a final cover. We had, it was a Tim Cordick book. We put out four different versions of the cover. And that's what we had for the Kickstarter. So people could see what it might be like, but we didn't pick a definitive one. Kickstarter is unusual and you're basically selling the project before it's funded. So you need high fidelity material to do well. Yeah, I remember we uh, even took a similar sized book, (laughs) printed out our fake cover and like wrapped it. And we were like, you could have this, right? You're selling this vision. (laughs) <laughs> and so, yeah, so much change in this space. Really interesting. What would you say is the criteria for a good cover design? Like, when is it successful? There's two different ways to think of it. Uh, one is on the sales and marketing side. And you hinted at one already. Exactly how is a potential customer or potential reader going to first experience your cover? And now it's dominantly, it's online. So you have to be designing for that. When it's a thumbnail, what will it look like? What do you want people to see or experience when they see it? And most of the time, you want it to be either attention grabbing or at least have clarity that people can read the title. And you're betting on the title. The title and the cover kind of go together. They're both supposed to give a clear question or feeling that someone can respond to instantly. And so a short title, a clear cover, big font, Logistically, usability-wise, that's what you're going for, which is many covers utterly fail at. Then the other end is when someone actually has the book and they read the book because now they're having some experience with the creation and you want that cover to be distinctive enough that it, it matches with whatever experience they're having and they remember it. And I think of novels a lot in this way. The book title, think of Moby Dick or Great Gatsby. Those are classics. But when they came out, no one knew what Moby Dick was. No one knew who Great Gatsby were. But as they're reading the book, those terms and the cover for those things now blend together and they put it on their shelf and it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a memory. It's a visualization of a memory. So you're thinking about it on the other end too. You want them it to be identifiable enough that it has a visual memory that, that ties to their experience with the book. When you go to a bookstore, like what are you looking for when you did last go to one? I love bookstores and I love the um, serendipity of it, uh, the feeling of serendipity that you can just wander here and look and you poke into a section that you don't ever go into and just see what happens if you like go in there. I'm a believer though in the, there's a core usability element to it that unless it's really striking, which is unusual because it's competing against all the other striking books. So it's, it's like a cacophony of, of visual images. It's usually the title. Can I read the title on the spine? Is the title presented in a clear enough way that I'm intrigued? I don't have any specific criteria in my head. I'm letting my brain respond. And that might be because of the title and it's hopefully it's clear to read, but it could also be because there's something that I can't explain that has made me curious. Yeah. Very cool. Thanks, Scott, for sharing all of that. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. It's love to talk. Book, writers love to talk about books. Yeah. I mean, what's, what's better? Listeners, if you'd like to learn more about Scott's work, check out his books and his awesome blog. Also, Scott, I've been loving your tweets. Very enjoyable for me as a designer. But listeners, check out scottburkin.com. 
And Scott, stay with us, and we'll bring John Key into the conversation in just a minute. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today, and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. We're back, and we're joined by our special guest, John Key. John is an artist, designer, writer, and educator whose work focuses on Blackness, queerness, family, and Southerness. His work has been featured in The Armory Show, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The New Yorker, and The Atlantic. For Design Museum Everywhere's latest Design Museum magazine issue on the intersection of design and policing, John created three original pieces of artwork for the essay Ghosts of Prisons Past by David Lamb. John is the co-founder of Morcos Key alongside fellow RISD alum Y.L. Morcos. Morcos Key is a Brooklyn-based design studio collaborating with arts and culture institutions, nonprofits, and commercial enterprises in North America and the Middle East. Together, they designed the long-awaited Black Futures book, which we are going to talk about. At Morcos Key, John and YL's designs translate their clients' stories into visual systems that demonstrate how thoughtful conversation and formal expression make for impactful design. John, welcome to the show. Yay! Thank you so much for having me. It's so exciting to be here. Yeah. Can't wait to talk about books. <laughs> I love books. Books. We got Scott. We're, we're all loving books. Um, but I did, I did want to chat, start our chat uh, with something that I learned from your interview with Debbie Millman, who we recently had on our show, because it's really resonated with me and my experience. So you were talking about dabbling in arts as a kid without even knowing what design was. And that was me too. I just had no idea what design was. And so as then you moved into your career, have you sort of, have you learned that design needs to be intentional or subtle, or is it a mix of the two that make your design successful? Oh, interesting question. I'm starting with the hard one, my man. Yeah, I don't know. Interesting. I mean, for me, I guess design really always responds to a brief or a problem and it's trying to create a clear solution. I think that is the clearest thing about design. So sometimes it does require it to be bold. Sometimes it requires it to be subtle. Sometimes it needs to be, you know, to tell you to stop. You know what I mean? So I think design functions in all different types of ways. So for me, it's really hard to like categorize my design in one aesthetic or one kind of voice because we really try to, again, come to our clients and answer our clients' specific goals. I have your book right here. I got it a couple of days ago and I'm really enjoying it. And one question to follow up with Sam's is I'm fascinated by, I'm an author. So my books are mostly written to be read and I look at this book and there's so many different kinds of design here. And so I'm curious if that was, what was in the brief that led to this and how did you respond to that to create what I have in my hands? Yeah, great question. So Kimberly Drew reached out to me three years before this book project <laughs> happened. And it was um, 
And she reached out because she saw a project called The Tenth Magazine that I'd done. And it's the Black Queer Magazine founded by Kari Sepp and Cal Banks and Andre Vernon. But it's a beautiful magazine. It's filled with images, but it also kind of acts as an art object. Like, you can read it, but it also is kind of an object. Like, it's really beautiful. It's intentionally designed. And I think for this project, when we started talking with Kimberly and Jenna about it, it was very clear right away that there were going to be so many different types of content. Like, there were going to be essays, there was going to be interviews, there was going to be pictures, there was going to be paintings, there was going to be poetry. And so when we first presented ideas for the book, we actually presented three design directions. And each of the design directions approach really was thinking about how do you organize this, all of this information into one frame, into one container. So one idea was maybe it just doing it being linear from A to Z or chronologically from by time when objects were made. But we quickly realized with the third direction, and that's the one they picked was the idea of this being um, rhizomatic. Like you could jump from one part of the book to another part of the book that parts of the book are interconnected. It really very much responds to the internet and how we browse and how we use tabs and how we use social media. Like, you know, this book was originally founded by Kimberly reaching out to Jenna via the internet, via social media. So having that type of tagging and flipping and moving around the book and not having to read it linear was really, really exciting for us. And I thought really, you know, was true to the initial start of the project, but also just all the diversity of and wealth of topics and mediums and materials. It is a unique book for sure. How, how did all that then the cover. Can you describe the cover and how that all kind of like came together? Because you've got all this stuff to work with. I mean, it is a plethora of material. And it, and like you said, all different. It's crazy. So the cover is actually basically the same cover that we designed day one when in our very first presentation, which never happens. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but we, you know, we love the idea that, you know, the color black would be on the cover, obviously encompassing all the variations and shades and um, identities of blackness that would be inside the book. But also, we love the idea of this foil, this rainbow kind of foil that, again, showed the nuances, showed the mm -hmm. multiplicity, showed the all the colors are in black. So can you show all the colors and black at the same time and really speaking to all the different types of voices? You know, like we hope, and, and Kimberly and Jenna's hope was, you know, regardless of what type of black person you are, you're able to see yourself in this book in some type of way and form. And, you know, that's what we really wanted the cover to also do. We wanted it to also be, in some ways, a mirror, you know, to the person holding the book. Yeah. So you're an artist, you're a musician, you're working in all these different mediums. How do you infuse all those different mediums into your design work? Well, one of the unifying kind of thing of all of my practices is writing. I always return to writing first. Like, if I am about to do a painting, I'm always writing. If we're doing a client, we're always doing, you know, a, a branding, we're always doing writing and research and figuring out what the voice is and doing a strategy. If we're doing a book like Black Futures, you know, we made a 30 page presentation of like this idea with writing and with words and with text and like really trying to put it out there. And I think that's one unifying, one unifying practice of mine is just being able to return to the page and get ideas out. And then I guess secondly, you know, as an artist, really thinking about storytelling, thinking about my own personal history, thinking about my own personal voice, right, and how that comes to life in color, in composition, in 
uh, form versus design where I'm really working with a client. I'm thinking about somebody else's questions or problems. I am thinking a lot more about form. I'm thinking a lot more about, again, the use. And so I guess it's like two sides of this coin that I get to you know, be always inspired by color and composition and research and texture. And then the other way is always researching and always trying to make sure it's clear and always trying to solve a problem. So I think both of these and having both of these practices kind of go hand in hand. I, I get to be really tight sometimes. I get to be loose sometimes. When, when you talk to younger designers, this is a pro- I talk to a lot of younger designers. And for a lot of them, they don't have the diversity of forms of expression that you seem to have. So for them, they got into design because that's the medium they feel most comfortable in. And they really don't like to write. They really don't like these because they feel like I'm expressing myself through this medium. And that seems to set them up for problems when they have a client who doesn't articulate primarily through visual language. So do you have any advice for younger designers who aren't they're really more dominant in just one medium about how they can use writing or other mediums to help them? Absolutely. I mean, I teach at Cooper Union. I do a ton of workshops all over the place and universities and everywhere. And I used to teach a class like this, actually. Uh, but I always encourage all of my students to write. And I even, I mean, there was a class I was teaching for a couple of years where it was all a writing-based class. Like I gave them writing prompts, they would write, and then they would take their writing to create design. And even in like even if it's not a specific writing class, I mean, like I'm teaching graphic design one and two at Cooper Union right now. And even with those students and those assignments, there's some research component. There's some, you know, we're on Zoom. So there's like a presentation component that has to happen now that you have to be able to use, you know, use Google Slides online. So so there always is some type of writing component. And I and I do find that everyone thinks they're a bad writer. <laughs> like no one thinks they're like an amazing writer. Like I've never met anyone that's like, oh, I'm an amazing writer. You know, like I've just never met that person. But I think when you start writing and you realize that you have something to say and that is impactful for you or, or helps you answer a question or it helps you know, research that you're trying to think about. I think that's when people start to say like, oh, I see why people do this. You know, it's not about me trying to publish something or even present it to the world. It's about me processing thoughts for myself. I'm curious, back to designing book covers, what makes designing a cover different than maybe some, you know, other projects that you've done? Like, it it makes me think that maybe there's like more pressure, right? Because I've got this like author's baby (laughs) that I'm holding. Do you feel that? You know, what makes these projects unique? Yeah, I mean, a book cover, it very much ranges from project to project. I think, I feel like all book covers now have to exist as a thumbnail really well. I don't think that was a problem that people even considered, you know, 20 years ago when people were making books. So now there's like a marketing, there's like an image that the book cover has to exist one inch tall. So I think that's a new problem that we have as book designers. But I think also for us, the book, cover hopefully naturally is an extension of the book. And I think, you know, with the Black Futures cover, for example, I think the reason why, you know, we designed that cover and everyone was like, that's it. Like, it works. is because we were really considering, you know, the content. We really, you know, there's a hundred images 
500 images in this book. There's no way we could have selected one image, you know? So taking an image out of the equation automatically helps. You know, there's not going to be one defining image. So we knew that we wanted to be typographic. I think on book covers, scale works differently, right? Like you have to basically, you only have two chances with the book cover. You have something big and something small. You don't really have like a poster where you're, you know, reading it from across the room. So you see it one time and then every time you step closer, you're gaining more information. So with a book cover, it's just two glimpses and you should have all the information you need, which is, I think is another fun yet challenging. <laughs> um, Interesting criteria. Yeah, of a book. So I think those are all things that I think about. It's like the content, seeing this book work on different scales as an image, and then what is that one-two kind of gesture that, we, that people are going to get from it? So I got involved with Design Museum and Sam because I wrote a book called How Design Makes the World. My, I try, I'm trying to teach people to be more design savvy, even for people who are not designers. And Design Museum's mission is a similar mission. And you teach designers, which is part of the equation. But I'm trying to figure out how do we teach designers to be better ambassadors to regular people to become more design savvy? Because that's really the hope. Is that we have a better design world, we need regular people to appreciate this stuff more. I mean, do you think that's a problem even? Like, do you, something you deal with and see, or is it like, no, that'll happen on its own? What's your impression of where design literacy is in culture? I think now more than ever before, we live in a super design literate world. I mean, because of Instagram, because of social media, like everybody literally thinks they're a designer. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like there is... there's so many things like I, I like the word. I, I like the, I like you had the word thinks in there. That was. <laughs> I, I mean, like I I genuinely believe that everyone is a designer, everyone is an artist, everyone is a writer. But I definitely think that's a difference than that, and then also thinking that you can like make a logo and you've never made yeah. a logo before. You know, I think those are interesting nuances. I don't know. We are so bombarded by images that define our taste, that define our, that define who we are in some ways. And so I feel like more than ever before, people are actually aware of at least things that they like in a way that I don't think that people have been easily disseminated before. And I guess, you know, it's not something that I really question that much anymore. I guess like, you know, even teaching my students, you know, they are so smart and they have so many references to real world things that I just didn't even know about, like learning about design, you know, like they just have a wealth of information at their fingertips that we didn't even have. So I think people are just aware of it. Like people know that there's work and change and um, effort and energy. John, I wanted to chat about this exhibition. So Marcos Key did an exhibition called Makes Slash Reads that was on view for the Center of Book Arts last winter. Uh, and in my research, just finding how it explored the relationship between making and reading. It also celebrated the books that have influenced you the most. So which books uh, made the biggest impact in your life, in your design life? Yeah, so yeah, the Makes Reads exhibition was looking at 20 books that we created and that des- uh, that were designed by Wael and I, our studio. So it ranged from literally zines that were, you know, just paper stapled together to the 10th Magazine, to um, arts and cultural books or books for museums or publications. It was a, a really large range. On the flip side of that, 
the reads was books that were in our collection that are books that it could be our friends design, other design studios that we love. It could be artists that we love that made a, a zine or a book. It could be a research object that we, you know, return to. So some of the ones, for example, was Martin Gutierrez, who's an amazing artist who was just at the Venice Biennale a couple of years ago, did this magazine called Indigenous Woman. And it's basically her photographing herself in all kind of indigenous costuming and wardrobing and clothes, but also it's like a high-end fashion element to it. So it's really beautiful. Tied in with this personal narrative, there was a book that was called Fearless that was designed by Isometric Studio, which is run by Andy Chen and Vikas Jawad. And that book was looking at LGBTQ athletes who were photographed from all over the country who are out and proud. It's just like kind of this amazing typographic, but also image book. There was this counterculture book that I love that's literally a collection of zines and posters and images from 1960s to the 70s that is just all counterculture stuff. I think I got it in San Francisco and it's amazing. So it's, it's like literally just such a range of, of topics. And I think for us, it was one showing our little ecosystem that we exist in, in terms of people that we collaborate with, things that we're reading, other interesting things that people should should know. And like, yeah, and having that dialogue, you know, and also putting our friends up, you know, and the diners that we love up. And I think that's always exciting and making room for those types of, that is amazing, you know? Yeah, I love having that side by side, the stuff that you've made, the stuff that inspires you. I mean, there you go, that's design. And then, yeah, I just wanted to hear from you both. Maybe we can start with you, Scott, and John. You can you can bring it home for us. But I'm curious what your favorite book covers are. Ooh, uh, see that this this is this gets fascinating because there are some covers I think are amazing as works of design as art. Just just the thing on its own, I put it up on my wall. And then there's the relationship I have with a book because I read it or it moved me. And now the cover signifies what's in the book to me. And there's some deeper, or when I read it, I want to keep it around. It it may not be my favorite visual design thing, but it represents what's in the book to me. And now it has a powerful meaning that may transcend purely the visual experience of a great graphic designed object. So, um, So my head is spinning on what my favorite books are first, just because I'm a reader and that's the primary index I'm going to think about books. But if you told me one of my favorite graphic design works, there probably are some book covers in there. So that's my way not to give you a no, specific No, I, I love that answer. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, you've got me thinking of like, you know, I read Dune so many times as a kid, right? Not a very exciting cover. You know, it's black. It's just this black thing with like a stripe of like desert. Really kind of cool, minimal. But it does. It means a lot to me as like an artifact in my life. John. Favorite book covers? I'm I am thinking. I feel like it's kind of goes the same way. You know, like the what's the name of that book? Like 1984 book cover, or like the Brave New World book cover. Like those are some book covers that like always just stay in my mind that are pretty iconic. And it's just like is is it because it's a great book cover, or is it because I read it at such an impressionable age? You know, I think that's really interesting. Like I think about like the Henry Taylor art book that just came out like a couple of years ago. It's like bright orange and it has like Henry Taylor and like this vinyl type and it has a big image. Like I love that. I love the bright orange 
you know, cover. It's really beautiful. I mean, I'm sure I'm like, I mean, we're like, oh, I should have said that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's hard. It's a hard question. It is. It is. Well, thank you both. I mean, this is conver- I love this conversation, John. Your work's amazing. And so I really appreciate you sharing with us now and also sharing it with us for the policing issue of the magazine. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. It was nice meeting you, Scott. Yeah, it's great to chat with you. I love your advice here. It was great. Listeners, to learn more about John's work, visit MarcosKey.com and we will post a link. And now it's that time. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I will go first. So this week, I don't know if it's what, people are getting vaccinated, things are opening up, um, but it's got me thinking about our local brewery here in West Acton, our, our little small town, and I'm a member in their SHARE program. So our brewery is called True West, just down the street from our house, which is somewhat dangerous. Uh, but their beer is so good, I'm partial to their brown Bess rich brown ale. And they also have awesome food. But my weekly dose is this program. It's called The Share. Basically, it's a mug membership and a way to support the brewery. You pay around $100 a year and you get your big numbered ceramic mug at the brewery that you can always use when you're there. I feel very special when I order my beer and I get it in my mug. Uh, It's bigger than normal. It's bigger than a pint glass, so that's nice. You get more beer. Each mug is handcrafted by a local ceramic artist. His name is Joshua Rystead. And the design is inspired by the classic like German style beer steins. So the mug membership also grants you access to all these like special tasting events and social events. So I love the community aspect of it. I love this brewery so much. I actually went for the founders mug and I won't say how much that cost, but it was a gift from my wife. So thank you, Nicole. And uh, what's better than than a gift of beer? Uh, The proceeds from the mug share are my favorite part. So the proceeds go to sending the True West brewers to various trainings and brewing conferences. So basically, your membership is paying for them to learn how to make better and better beer. So money well spent. Uh, At the end of the year, if they haven't used all the money from the share on their training programs, they donate the rest to the local youth sports leagues, which is great. So I haven't seen my mug in a while. I miss it very much, um, but I am looking forward to being reunited with Founders Mug 275 again very soon. And again, being part of that community here in my town. That's mine. Scott, you are up. Mine's a simple one. So I have lots of friends in other states and one of our common conversations now is who's got vaccinated? When are you going to get vaccinated? What phase is your state in? We're phase 2B or 4C and it's very confusing and I have no urgent issue to get a vaccine, but I would like to know when it's available near me. And so there's like 20 different services and sites. And then eventually someone told me, hey, have you tried Dr. B? I'm like, what? He's like, Dr. B. I'm like, Dr. B who? He's like, no, just go. Dr. B is the website. And so you go there and it's a bunch of volunteers. It's a beautifully simple website. You put in your phone number and your zip code and they correlate all the stuff. They know about surpluses from different programs and they'll just notify you when a vaccine is available. And if you can fill that slot, you go get it. And if not, get you on the next list. So there's nothing elegant or new or breakthrough about it. 
but it's super simple. The website's nice and clean and uh, it has removed some stress from my life and worrying about when I can get one. Dr. B. That's great. A simple website, but yeah, like you said, probably a lot of people working behind the scenes to make it simple. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Inverse relationship looks simple, yeah. but I'm sure it's not. Complex. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. I will check it out. Thanks again for being here. It's your second episode. So, you know, you got now you have to just go for the trifecta. I'm going for it. You tell me when. I love you guys and what you do. You folks do great stuff. I'm happy to be help if I can and be here. Awesome. And you're fun to talk to. Yeah. You know, it's not bad. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> okay. That's our show. I want to, again, thank Scott Birkin and John Key for joining us. And thank you all for being here with us. We'll post links to some of the other resources we discussed today on our episode page. So check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. While you're there, Check out the We Design Exhibition conversation cards, and you can bring the We Design Exhibition home to you. We Design is an exhibition by Design Museum Everywhere that brings together creatives from different backgrounds to examine and celebrate the range of career paths and applications and their impact in design. The deck has totally been a labor of love and includes stories from creatives in various design disciplines, industries, and fields, along with statistics, topics for discussion, all around diversity and equity in design. It can be used alone or with friends. You can even use it over Zoom. Uh, it's all available now. You can order your deck on designmuseumeverywhere.org. You can always find the latest from the Design Museum on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook. And we have an awesome weekly e-newsletter. Team works hard on it every week. You can sign up for that on our website and always get the latest from Design Museum in your inbox. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amor Yates with production assistance by Ryan Flom and editing support by Julia Christian. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the whole team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for being here and we'll talk again next week. <laughs>